Hello and welcome to Think Health. My name is Miles Holbrook-Walk. This week, we're taking a serious look at the health issues affecting the trans community. The health-specific concerns of the trans community are complex, in the sense that very few of them are about someone being trans. In fact, almost all of them are about societal responses to people's gender. The panel features Sarah Bowman from the University of Technology, who is researching gender dysphoria and minority stress. Ali Gallagher, a writer and published poet across many publications, and Jet Hunt, who works for 2010, an organisation that offers services for the LGBTQIA plus community, particularly focusing on younger people, but with broader services too. A heads up, some of the discussion that takes place here does concern the disproportionately high rates of attempted suicide, self-harm and depression amongst trans youth. If anything you hear raises concerns for yourself or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. And now for the show. introduce yourselves and your preferred pronouns as well please okay so my name's sarah my preferred pronoun is ms my name's ali uh, my pronouns are they and them i'm a writer and a social work student and i'm jet and my pronouns are also they and them and i am the drop-in worker at 2010 so a youth worker now that's an important place to start this conversation around pronouns is because language matters when speaking about trans issues and trans rights in particular. Do you find that the current public sphere is one that is understanding this enough or as much as it should be at the moment? Yeah, sure. I guess I feel like there's a willingness there for sure. People are maybe more willing to be educated about trans issues than maybe they were ten or even five years ago. You thought there was more of a willingness now than there was five or ten years ago. It feels to me, Mm. in my observations, that there's still a very long way to go in this regard. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, I guess guess the observation that I would make is that maybe it's being quick for a very specific, small Mm. portion of the community. And so a lot of people who maybe don't have access to certain resources or, you know, fit in within, like, kind of... Uh, other normative frameworks can be kind of left behind or ignored in that. Where are the specific uh, areas that you feel there are those lack of resources in terms of acceptance and speaking to this idea of understanding the issues that, that trans people face? There's some services in the public health system. If you've got money, you can get access to services. But if you don't have money or support of family, it can be extremely difficult to get access to any help. Now, uh, Jet, you work at 2010, uh, an organisation that does a lot of work with young trans people. How hard is it for them? Because some of these uh, young people may not have come out as trans to their their family or maybe even to some of their close friends. And in terms of financial independence, we know that most young people really don't have that in any significant way for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for the young people that we work with... um We've certainly seen this massive explosion in the visibility of of gender diversity in our communities. But I think for some young people that can be a bit of a a double-edged sword almost. So gender diverse young people, gender non-conforming young people might find themselves incredibly visible at school. And that may or may not be a really comfortable place for them. We are seeing lots more kind of discourse around gender diversity and gender non-conformity. 
But we're also seeing, I guess, um, with that comes a, a big kind of critique and a, a backlash. And so I think we, we're definitely seeing lots of young people who are facing all kinds of discrimination, harassment, bullying in various kind of settings across their life, school interruption. So I think whilst I think there's been some massive benefits to, to this increased visibility, increased discussion, that comes with a cost that I guess is borne particularly by young gender non-conforming people. Of course, it was a quite harrowing study. I think many people would conclude, at least last year in 2017, by Telethon Kids survey. And it was a survey that revealed trans people were 28 times more likely to have attempted suicide. Rates of depression were 80% among trans uh, young people aged between 14 and 25. There was also significant rates of self-harming. These numbers, I think, speak to what some people have concluded is a health crisis in the terms of the shortcomings of the health system to really adequately provide services for and to assist young people. Tell me a little bit about the work that 2010 does in this field, Jet. But I think it's really important to clarify that we often, it's good to note that those diagnoses, those experiences are generally the result of harassment, bullying, discrimination. So it's not like trans young people are somehow biologically inclined to mental health variations. But if you find yourself um, massively bullied or discriminated against, there's going to be some consequences of that. It's good to note sort of so from the Growing Up Queer report that came out a few years ago that 2010 was a part of that study, young people are overwhelmingly reporting being proud of their uh, gender identity and sexuality. So in addition to these reports we're having of like discrimination, harassment and bullying, we're also having young people say, I'm really proud of my identity. And I think those things are good to carry along with us as we note the crisis that we're facing, absolutely, but as well the, the strengths. So 2010 works from a strengths-based and client-centred practice. And do you feel like that idea of pride is sometimes lost within the the narrative? Uh, Particularly, I suppose, media coverage seems to me is it's uh, it, it doesn't seem particularly common that we'll see major media attention given to stories of pride, perhaps outside with the one exception maybe around Mardi Gras, mm-hmm. but I think uh, it's uh, there have been quite a few critiques from the, the queer community broadly that sometimes this coverage feels somewhat ceremonial, that it doesn't pay due diligence in, in terms of proper reportage. Ali, perhaps you've got some views on this as well as someone who's written and uh, published uh, journalism as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the bulk of the reporting is, for one thing, is centered on like deficit rather than strengths, which you know is obviously an issue, and I guess also tends to be pretty sensationalistic. It's kind of an issue as well of a lot of that reporting is being done by by cis people and by cis writers who maybe haven't you know taken the time to inform themselves about you know better practices when it comes to just speaking about trans people and centering our voices. Is there also an issue where you have organisations that are framing themselves as allies to gender diverse people, not backing up their rhetoric with actions? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an easy thing to commodify without having to, you know, put any actual effort behind. Now, Sarah, we've spoken about this bullying aspect. There was actually a program that was tailored towards addressing bullying of people who were gender diverse, people who were even uh, who had a different sexuality to the heterosexuality in the Safe Schools program. 
Now, that program is framed as a culture wars point by a lot of commentators. How valuable is it to have programs that are targeted towards anti-bullying at such an early level for uh, young people in terms of any sort of mental travails, whether it be uh, around their difference of gender or difference of sexuality or even just insecurity around yeah. a whole bunch of things that are totally unrelated to those issues? Oh, look, absolutely. It's, it's paramount that young people are supported in every way that they can. And with things like safe schools and the marriage debate, you know, it became a political football. And when young people see these things debated and they see permission to debate, to debate, permission to question them, permission to make comments that are happening in the media late last year, that really is crawling for them and that can really cripple someone's individuality and that feeling that we were just starting to get some momentum in this space and that someone could be proud, but now they're feeling judged. And it can really make it difficult for someone to make that decision to come out to talk to mum and dad because a lot of people may have found out that the parents weren't as supportive as they thought. And you know, a very difficult time for a lot of young people last year. Um, but long-term bullying, discrimination, it really affects that trajectory and can you know, stop a young person from flourishing. Now, you're also doing some research in the field. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The research we're doing is in the areas of gender dysphoria and minority stress. Um, a lot of the protocols so far are around the medical treatments and we don't have a lot of psychological research as to how to treat the minority stress or how to support a young person because, as mentioned earlier, being gender non-conforming isn't a medical or mental disorder but it can relate or can result in a lot of issues for that young person and having people in the field who are taught to understand what those issues are is of paramount importance but it's not occurring yet universities aren't teaching anybody about gender diversity and the language that's used and the type of issues that young people will face. Now, uh, some people might not be aware of the of, of what gender dysphoria is or what minority stress is. Can you just unpack that a little bit? <clears throat> okay, so gender dysphoria is the that initial distress that someone experiences when they don't feel that they're the gender that they were born. They feel like there's something different. Initially, that can be quite high in a young person, and often if they transition into their desired gender, the gender dysphoria is reduced, but not completely removed. It's always there. It's something that can kick up in life if someone misgenders you or if you see someone being criticised that can stir up your own emotional well-being. Minority stress is what we're talking about earlier with the bullying, the discrimination. So what typically might happen for a young person is they experience a lot of distress for their gender dysphoria. They come out to their family and parents. They might receive some medical treatment to help prevent puberty. Their gender dysphoria comes down. But then they transition in society. And that's when the minority stress and the bullying, it will pick up. So it's very difficult to manage that transition for the young person and help them to maintain that anxiety and depression that will come with that journey. What do you think are some of the nuances of trans health issues or gender diverse issues that perhaps can't be catered to by a, a health system that just applies a broad brush strokes to uh, every patient that comes into the health sector? 
the um, inclination to really pathologise the experience of being gender diverse. So that attitude that the gender diverse young person is the problem. We have to fix that problem. That might be, you know, I think we see that at all levels. We see that within the school, schools and the way that a school might respond to a gender diverse young person. So it might be that approach of like the way that you're dressing or behaving is inviting the bullying. And so we're going to ask you to modify your dress or behaviour, which is, of course, sends all kinds of really problematic messages to a young person. If you're not fitting in, you need to change your behaviour in order to fit in better. But certainly in a health system, that approach that we need to treat the the symptoms of the bullying, harassment and abuse you might be experiencing, so the depression you might be experiencing or the anxiety that you might be experiencing, rather than taking a whole-of-society approach, the problem is with the people who are abusing, bullying or harassing you and not with you. Yeah, I definitely think when... A trans person is accessing, I guess, like medical intervention. There's still so much onus on them to jump through certain hoops, like how they might present. I I think my experiences with accessing trans-related healthcare have all kind of been really dependent on me fitting within a very kind of idea of like what a, a trans person like is or looks like which I don't think really adequately reflects you know the breadth of how a trans identity might like what it might look like and how frustrating is that on, on that personal level yeah I mean it's it's pretty frustrating um I mean I think it's definitely been the case that when accessing some health services I've felt like I've had to you know change the way that I was coming across or had to speak in a way that didn't really reflect who I was. I think, you know, it's an issue if half the time that I spend accessing healthcare services, like explaining being trans to a healthcare provider, like that shouldn't really be on me to have to like do that job for them. I suppose in that sense, would you say that the health system is discriminating against individuals? Yeah, totally. Yeah. In order to access trans health interventions, an individual has to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder. So that's a really big starting problem. That way of understanding being trans can be really helpful for some folks. Um, And I don't want to deny that experience at all. But for many people, it's really pathologising to have to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder in order to access what can be a life-saving intervention. Sarah, you've also got some insights about the health system. So... Nationally, most hospitals in capital cities do have gender-specific services. At the moment in New South Wales, we don't have any services. Hopefully that will change in the near future, but for the largest capital city in Australia not to have any services, it's really quite appalling here. Thinking about the consequences of lacking the proper infrastructure and services people will just end up not accessing the health system? I think a lot of people are quite scared of the health system. Uh, The health system wants you to fit into certain categories and boxes. It's very conservative and from the perspective of doctors and medical people, understandably so. But if you don't fit in those boxes, then it can be very, very difficult. Also, a lot of the medications may not be on PBS, so they can be very, very expensive as well, let alone surgeries which can be 
gotten in Australia, but almost impossible to get on Medicare. And I think we often talk in in my role, you know, talking with young people um, who are trans about things like trans broken arm syndrome, which is the idea that you might go to a doctor with a broken arm and the doctor's like, oh yeah, I see that you have a broken arm, but tell me about your trans health journey. Like, tell me about your transgender experience. And so we often find ourselves, you know, as Ali mentioned, in the position of educating um, medical professionals around our experience, around our bodies. And I think that means that young trans people often avoid going to the doctor for anything, not just because they're seeking specific interventions around their gender identity, but because they have a cold and they really don't feel like explaining gender neutral pronouns to their GP today things that people always are demanding in any sort of public discussion. Well, what are the tangible solutions? You want change? Well, how, how are you going to bring it about? Does it start with education? Is that the most critical point in terms of needing to bring about change in the health sector to, to better cater to gender diverse people's needs? What back ends the health sector is politicians. They're the control of the funding. So being a, in a conservative government in New South Wales, that is going to have far reaching issues for as long as those opinions are in place. Do we feel like there is any direction in the in the parliament at the moment at a federal level to actually change policy or better cater to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't really think in terms of specific things, but I do think that a lot of that advocacy falls on trans people a lot of the time and that kind of onus is on I guess trans people to like convince governments or you know systems that I guess that you know trans people deserve access to healthcare and rights without maybe having the support at that like higher level that it needs. The number one thing we can do is listen to young trans people. They know what they need. And so using things like correct pronouns, chosen names, they're really easy things for us to do and they're totally life-saving for young trans people. Some people say that a gender neutral pronoun like they is grammatically incorrect. And I guess I might say to that person, is grammar really the hill that you would like to die on? Is that the most important thing for you? Or is affirming this young person in a choice that they've made about themselves and their body actually maybe slightly more important? Yeah, I think it's just kind of about listening to us and not kind of inserting a narrative over the top of us and maybe I guess in particular not thinking of trans people as like an abstract or hypothetical community like we exist and the things we experience are are valid and are happening right now and very likely know a trans person and the thing that I always think of is that it's less of a detached abstract thing than it is a, a reality. Yeah I think for a lot of people any any variation in gender is just seems very, very different to their own perceptions of their gender and their sexuality. And just because someone feels like it's so normal and comfortable for them, they have to understand that for some people it's not. And to accept that other people can be different in something that is so fundamentally a part of their own personality and identity. And for a lot of people that can be very, it's a very, very hard bridge to cross. If they don't understand it, at a minimum, to accept that. And I think that also means role models, for instance, talking about mental health earlier, role models in society for gender non-conforming people are of critical importance, but not necessarily because they're trans, but because they're role models for who just happen to be trans.
Sarah Bowman, Ali Gallagher and Jet Hunt ending that panel discussion on health issues affecting the trans community. That's it for Think Health. If you enjoyed the show and aren't already subscribed, you can do so now. Just jump onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and just search Think Health. You can also find out more on our website, 2SCR.com forward slash Think Health. The show is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard all around Australia via the Community Radio Network. If any of the content you've heard raises concerns for yourself or someone you know, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. My name is Miles Holbrook-Walk. Till next time.